Good morning, church. As we are about to start our, 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 our really study through a passage of Scripture today, I invite you to find in your Bibles or on your devices, as Pastor Marlene just said, um, to, to turn to John 11. John chapter 11. It's a famous story. It's a, a story that a lot of people know. It's about the, it's, the story is titled in my Bible, The Death of Lazarus. The Death of Lazarus. And under the, uh, the title today, Facing the Silence, I want to talk not about Lazarus, I want to talk about his sisters, Mary and Martha, because for the first time in my life, having read through this story and read through this story and read through this story, I've been a pastor a long time, but in all of those, those moments, I never realized this story is not about Lazarus. This story is about the sisters. This story is about Mary and Martha. And I'm going to invite you to join me as we walk through their experience facing a disappointment with Jesus, facing the, the, the lack of an answer. It's easy to follow God when you get the answers you want. It's much tougher when you don't get those answers. So I'm going to invite you to join me. I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, John 11 and just the first uh, old six verses or so. It's uh, John 11 verse 1 says, Now a certain woman, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany's a small town. Um, it's about two miles approximately from Jerusalem. So uh, it's, it's close by. Jesus is there a lot. Lazarus of Bethany. This is the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It's an interesting statement because um, Lazarus doesn't get much published uh, word in scriptures. You don't hear much from Lazarus. Lazarus is declared to be one of Jesus' best friends, but you don't hear much from him in the text. His name is not mentioned in the text except for in a couple of places here in John. Remember that John is writing much later. He He's writing closer to the turn of the next century. He's 50, 60 years past the death of Christ when he writes this book. Very important to remember when you're writing, when you're reading it, because he writes reflecting on the whole of Jesus' life and ministry, and he does so in an opportunity to try to teach us something about Jesus. And so we've got, now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany. We'll find out in a minute that he's one of Jesus' best friends. This is the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So it appears that the audience he's writing to will know Mary and Martha better than they know Lazarus, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. We're going we're to see this story in the next chapter. But John is writing the story as if we already know the next chapter. He's telling us, hey, there's this woman. This is what happened. This is who she is. That's the Mary I'm trying to identify for you. So the story of Mary wiping Jesus' feet, anointing his head, that story is well known among the Christian church 60, 70 years, 50, 60 years after Jesus' death. And so he's referring to the story in that context. Verse 3. Therefore, the sisters... Therefore... The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now think about this message. So they send a message. They can't text him. They can't email him. They can't send him anything electronically. He is 20, 25 miles away down on the other side of the Jordan River. He has a long, it's a long walk back and forth. So assume the messenger who's traveling downhill moves quickly and gets there in a day. So Lazarus is sick. They say to Jesus, they, they say to the messenger, go tell Jesus, Lazarus is sick. But they don't just say Lazarus. They say, the one whom you love. 
Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick. Do you see the urgency in the message? The message is, hey, there's this guy. He's your friend. You love him a lot. And this guy whom you love, that's who's sick. And I want you to come because he's sick. Lazarus, your friend, this person you love, is sick. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death. Good news. Good piece of information. I'm assuming he says that with the person who is the messenger present. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now think about what you're holding on to here. You're John. You're writing this letter. This passage is sticking in your head. This is an important bit of information about God. And as such... He records what Jesus said. Remember, John is present. He's one of the disciples. He records what Jesus says. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glorification of the Son. For the glory of God and for the glorification of the Son. We're going to learn something about Jesus. It's going to uplift our understanding of who Jesus is as we interact with the story. So I'm trying to set you up for some things here. I want you to catch the bits and pieces that are given to us in the introduction. It's a very important introduction, actually. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So the Bible, the, John now is give, giving a sweeping comment. Of the whole family, he loves all of these people. These are all people he loves. But catch the next word. Read verse 6. If you don't have your Bible out, get it out. Read verse 6. So, Jesus loved Martha, Mary and and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, that he being Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days. Okay, okay. Pack this all away because we're going to refer back to this information. He loves Lazarus. He gets a message, Lazarus, your friend is sick. The guy you love is sick. Then the text, John goes to great pains to tell us what Jesus is saying because John knows the end of the story when he's writing it, right? John's writing the story as somebody who was there and knows the entirety of the story, knows the end of the story. And so John's saying in this passage, hey, Jesus said right at this moment, while the guy was still there, he said, this sickness is not to death. Oh, and by the way, don't forget, he loves the whole family. And he loves them Therefore, verse 6, so because he loved them, he stayed two more days. It's, it's, it changes the whole text. It, it transforms the way you think about this thing. Because he loved them, he stayed two more days. There's something more important about this going on. There's something going on here that is more significant, a bigger impact than what we're looking at on the surface. Because he loved them. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Therefore, so, because of that love, he stayed two more days. Two more days in the place. So, here's the picture. Let's get the timeline. Guy travels. Lazarus is sick. He travels down. Let's say quickly because he's going downhill. He travels down past Jericho, around Jericho, finds Jesus. Okay, let's say that just takes him one day. He then, because he's got an important message, hustles back 
Now, it would be a tough, long hike back up to make in one day. But let's say he actually makes it in one day. It's been two days by now. Okay? Jesus stays two days from the time he gets the message. So by the time, by the time this, this message gets to him, it's been a day of Lazarus' sickness. Who knows how long he was sick before they decided to send the message. Then the guy travels back from the time he hears that Jesus stays two more days. So about three have passed. Then and only then does Jesus decide to go back. So after staying two more days, Jesus then decides to go back up the hill. If you look at the passage, it says, verse 7, Then, after the two days had passed, then, after he had said, I'm sorry, then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go up to Judea again. Now, if you'd been reading the previous passages, you would know that in Judea they just tried to stone him twice. They had actually threatened threatened to stone him once they actually had tried. And so the disciples are a little leery about going back up to Judea. But Bethany is in Judea. It's just a couple of miles from Jerusalem where they were thinking about stoning Jesus for claiming that he was God's son. Then he said to the disciples, let's go back up to Judea. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you're going up again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? This is one of those things about being Jesus' disciple. It seems to me you never really know what he's talking about. Because listen to what he says. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if he walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Do you know the answer about whether or not you're going up to Judea yet? I don't. Because what he says doesn't seem to relate to that at all. I think it's important for us to remember, to, to remember that we don't always get everything. The disciples didn't get this at all. It would take context later in the story for them to understand what was being said. But Jesus doesn't answer, we're going up to Judea or not. These things he said after that, then he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I go that I might wake him up. Okay, our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Keep this in mind. He has told the disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to wake him up, right? The disciples say, oh good, great. If he's sleeping, he'll get well. He'll get better. If he's asleep, if he's resting, he'll be fine. The text then clears it up for us. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about talking, taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus says plainly, Lazarus is dead. So here's our picture. Here's all the pieces put together. Okay. Jesus hears the message from his, about his friend. My, your friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, it's not a sickness unto death. This is for the glory of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, that sounds good so far. The messenger heads back up. Jesus hangs around for two more days. Why? Because he loves these people. Hmm. Jesus does not answer their urgent request because he loves them. So I want you to take this in. And I don't want you to think of it as Lazarus and Mary and Martha. I want you to take this in and think about when it happened to you. Because everybody has a Lazarus. Right? All of us have buried something in our past. All of us have dealt with something. Something maybe right now in your life. You know, you've, you've come to God when you were, when you first became a Christian. 
And everybody told you, you know, all you have to do is believe. And if you believe, you will receive. And you started, you started taking in all these bits and pieces and you thought, great. I know what that means. That means if I believe, God has to do what I want. And that's just a wrong understanding. Because if God has to do what we want for any reason, if we get the prayer right, He has to do what we want. If we believe hard enough, He has to do what we want. If God has to do anything because we request it, then we then have become God. So that, you know, that first early toolkit you get when you're a Christian, you know, that first set of things you start to take in, they need some development. They need some more information. The disciples, Mary and Martha, are in this place. They have been dealing with the Messiah. They have been dealing with a miracle worker. They have seen Jesus work miraculous things. He has helped people. He has raised up the dead. He has healed the blind. He has healed the sick. He has cast out demons. All of that stuff. All of those things. And now Jesus is tweaking their understanding just a little. He's changing it and he's doing it because he loves them. Understand the motivation here. Understand the motivation here. Jesus is doing this because he loves them. He says to the disciples, we're going to go up to Judea now. The disciples are freaking out. We don't go up there. Somebody's going to kill us if we go up there. They don't like you up there. Jesus says, we're going. Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Let's let's not go up there because he'll get better on his own. Don't, Don't mess with this. Don't risk everything to go talk to Lazarus who's going to get better on his own. (laughs) Jesus said, no, our friend Lazarus is actually dead. But I'm going to wake him up. And then verse 15. Another insert from John to help us understand. John's picking the phrase and the conversation of Jesus out for us. Verse 15. I am glad for your sake that I was not there. That you may believe Nevertheless, let's go to him. Jesus says, I'm going to wake him up. He's dead. I'm going to wake him up. They've seen him do this before. Jesus then tells them, I'm glad we weren't there for your sake. Did you, do you catch Thomas? Are you reading ahead? Some of you read ahead. Do you catch Thomas's next comment? I love Thomas. We call him doubting Thomas, but this is one of the greatest, most powerful, succinct statements of faith in the text. Thomas, who does not understand what he just heard, Clearly, clearly doesn't understand. Then Thomas, who is called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. Thomas doesn't understand. Thomas doesn't understand what's being said. We're going up there. I'm going to wake him up. He's dead. I'm going to wake him up. So there's a resurrection being described. I'm glad we weren't there for your sakes because what you're going to see is going to change the way you understand who I am. John is feeding us the story. This is this is like one of those films where they kind of show you the end of the film where you're kind of in on it. The people in the film aren't aware of what's going on, but you kind of know what's going on in the background. You have this background story that's being unfolded for you and you're aware of it as the as the viewer, but the people interacting in the story don't know what's happening and you're seeing things and, and that are happening. They're giving you foreshadowing of what's going on. That's what John's doing. John's giving us foreshadowing of the meaning of the story, foreshadowing of the impact of the story. He's telling us why this is important, why Jesus is doing it. All the motives are here. All the pieces are here for us to see. 
that he's talking to his disciples about something important, that he's about to do something for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, for all three of them, because he loves them. So we find Thomas, completely unaware, representing the voice of the disciples. For one time, Peter doesn't jump in first. Let's go with him. I'd rather die with Jesus then live without him. There's a great piece of faith there. There's a great way to talk about, about your, your walk there. I would rather go up with him now and die. So we don't get the story of the travel up the hill. Here's my picture of it. Here's what I imagine. Jesus heads up the hill. He takes his time. He does what Jesus does. As he's walking along, he meets people, he talks to them, he helps people, he probably heals some people. He's probably doing what he normally does as he travels. This normal pace would take two days to get to Bethany. It's important. It's important because Mary and Martha have called him urgently and Jesus seems to not be in a hurry. Ever prayed and asked God to do something and he didn't seem to be in a hurry? All of us have it. All of us need it. All of us need to understand God doesn't march to the beat of our drum. God does not march to the beat of our drum. God is in the business of solving problems. God is in the business of creating a harvest. God is in the business of growing up the seed. We are in the business of planting the seed. That's our only business. We're in the business of the experience of asking God to intervene. That's all we have. The outcomes of our prayers, the outcomes of that business that we engage in are all up to God. God creates the outcome. We are not responsible for the outcome. And if we create the outcome, we are God. You got to understand that bit of theology. The moment God has to do what you say, you are in charge. You are in fact God. This is what paganism is. We kind of talk about this every once in a while. I keep trying to say it in ways that will get through. Paganism in every form. The Greeks, the Romans, the Nordics, everybody. How, no matter how well formed their theology or their mythology is, the reality is paganism is based on the idea that the person is in charge of the God. Through their offerings, through their sacrifices, through whatever, they make the God do what they want. Israel keeps buying that argument. Remember, all through the Old Testament, they keep trying to do things to make the gods do what they want. In fact, by the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees believe that they have figured out a way to make the God do what they want. See, legalism in, all, in, its, in its forms then and now is simply an act of paganism. It's simply an attempt to manipulate God by my behavior. I will offer God my perfect behavior and then God will have to do what I want. I will offer God the perfect, precise prayer and then he'll do what I want. I will offer God enough faith and then he'll do what I want. That's paganism. That is not following God. God is in charge of outcomes. I am not. And my prayers do not manipulate the behavior of God. If I believe that, I have shifted into paganism out of faith. I've shifted away from trusting in God no matter the answer He gives me because no is an answer. I have shifted away from trusting in God and into being God. Be careful about letting this in your heart. Be careful about letting this in your mind. It is a crazy manipulation. It is so 
so much our tendency. We, we want, we want to be in control of outcomes. We want to be able to fix stuff. I will tell you how to know when I'm under stress. If you show up at the church office, if you show up at my office and I'm rearranging furniture, it's because I'm under stress. When I am stressed out, when I'm at the end of my rope, when I can no longer do anything, change anything, fix what I'm dealing with, I'm overwhelmed by the number of things I'm dealing with, or I'm overwhelmed by the extent of something I'm trying to attack and I just can't seem to move it, I start moving furniture around. Quite literally, that's what I do. I will, I will start cleaning and, and moving my, my furniture around in my office. I shouldn't be. I have, I'm running out of time. I'm running up against a deadline. I'm, I don't know what to do next. I should be, I don't know, out doing something, uh, spiritual like praying or something like that. But instead I move furniture. You've, you've, you've heard the phrase, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's what I do. That is where I end up. When I am really stressed out, I'd start moving furniture around my office. So literally, if you show up in my office and I'm moving furniture, it's because I'm just stressed. I'm just struggling with something. So now you all know. My secretaries know. In fact, Catherine has gotten, has known me long enough that if I'm moving the furniture around in my office, she walks in and she says, what's wrong? She doesn't say, why are you moving the furniture? She knows why I'm moving the furniture. She says, what's wrong? What's going on? What's, is there something I can help you? Something I take off your plate? Something I can do for you? Because I just want to get control over something. I can get control over where my stuff is in my office. Cleaning it, moving furniture, doing whatever. I can control that. When I feel out of control, I take control of this little piece that I can control. Your Christianity, your faith, is not faith if you're in charge of the outcome. Your faith, what you believe to be your faith, is not actually faith if you are in charge of the outcome. So far in this story, everybody's disappointed. So far in this story, we know that Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come quick and he didn't. So far in this story, we know that the disciples did not want to go face stones in Judea and Jesus says we're going anyway. All the people who are interacting with Jesus are disappointed in the actions of Jesus, but we're given clues by John that there's something else going on. Jesus loved them, so he stayed a couple days. I'm glad we weren't there for your sake. There's something going on behind the story. This is not about the death of Lazarus, though that's a significant piece in the story. This is about what's happening around it. Before I go on, I just, I, I risk preaching for an hour and a half here today. Because I believe there's something in your life like this. It may have happened when you were a child. And you have prayed, you asked God at the time, or you've asked God since to deal with it. Someone abused you as a child and you say, where were you, God? What happened? Why didn't you take care of that? Why wasn't the outcome better? You say you're all powerful. You say you have authority, but you didn't do anything. You know, most of us don't actually give this prayer. We don't actually state this out loud. Most of us just feel it. Most of us hold it in and it is a corrosiveness in our hearts. 
and a corrosiveness toward our faith. And we try to bury it like Lazarus, right? We, we try to put it aside. We try to bury it, roll a big stone in front of the, uh, in front of the tomb so it can't get out. You know what that rock is there for? The rock is there to hold stinky stuff in and let nothing in or out. So no one can see the stinkiness and none of the stinkiness can get out. So I want to ask you, where are you? What have you buried? What have you, what, what, what is your Lazarus? Something happened in your life recently? Somebody you love died? Before their time? Or certainly before your expectation? And, and you, like these sisters, are saying, Lord, we sent an urgent message to you. We prayed. We had our whole church pray. We had all our friends praying. And I didn't get an answer. I didn't get the answer I wanted. You didn't produce the outcome that I'd expected. I don't know what to do with that. What do you do when heaven is silent concerning your answer? You know, it's easy to be pious when it's someone else's answer, right? It's easy to be pious when you're praying for somebody else. When you're you're talking about someone else's need, when you're talking about someone else's worry, You know, when you're praying for your neighbor's relationship. Oh, my neighbor's Lord, could you bless them? They have this crummy marriage. Would you help them? But when it's your marriage, when your spouse is crazy, it gets really personal then, right? You want God's intervention. Could you please make my husband not be crazy? Everybody's got a Lazarus buried somewhere in their life. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been dead four days. It's a really important thing. It's a, it's a small factor. John puts it in for the, for the believers, for the people to understand the, the magnitude of what's happening. John states it so that you'll understand how big this, big of a deal this is. Jesus comes, when Jesus arrived, we'll find out in a minute, he doesn't even enter the village. He's on the outside of the village. He stays outside. There's a, there's a lot there too as well. We'll get to it in a minute, but he stays on the outside of the village, but somehow he finds out. Somebody comes and tells him. Somebody learns that Jesus is there and says, yeah, Lazarus dead. He's been, he dead, died four days ago. Do you think God needed to be informed that Lazarus died four days ago? No, I think Jesus was staying because he was waiting for this. Here's why. Like many cultures, before there was a doctor who could put a stethoscope on the heart, before there was a way to tell for sure whether somebody was actually dead, before you could do a, a, a quick check to see if there was anything anything happening in this body, people for centuries didn't believe you were dead until you were really dead. People didn't believe you were dead until you were actually starting to decompose a little. They didn't believe you were dead until you'd been dead for a while. They they didn't know what a coma was, but they'd seen people recover from what looked like death. One of the reasons there were often, you would often bring the dead or seemingly dead person into the house and you would have them there in your house and they'd be awake and there'd be time is just in case they awakened. Just so that, just in case they woke up. 
There, you, you've, you've heard that, um, you probably, I don't know if you've heard it. They, in, in times past, they used to tie a string around the finger of a deceased person that they buried inside the coffin. And they would put a bell over the grave so that if the person woke up, whew, this just freaks me out. I can't imagine what that felt like. They could ring the bell to tell you they were still alive. Because they didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have a way to find out. So the statement, the simple little statement, he'd been dead four days, is very important to the reader. Like I said, there's a lot going on in this story. There's so many layers of this. When Jesus arrives, he finds out that she's been there, he's been dead four days. And he tells, there's a little bit of background in the story, a little bit of information given now. It says that, there, that Jesus, Jerusalem was just a couple miles, or Bethany was just a couple miles from Jerusalem. People had come down from Jerusalem. They were, they were there to, to tell, uh, or to, 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 yeah, come on brain. They were there to be part of the, the funeral service, part of the, of the wailing, part of the mourning that was going on. And so people had gathered. Apparently Lazarus was known in Jerusalem. People from Jerusalem, relatives, family, friends, people had come down to be part of this. Uh, there were actually professional mourners hired in some of these situations and their job was to be there doing an appropriate amount of crying and wailing and mourning. And somehow Jesus gets a message. I'm down at verse 20 now. Somehow Jesus gets a message to Martha. Mary stays in the house. Martha comes. So I have my picture of this. I've kind of pictured this house. I don't know if you've ever been in a house where there's a funeral going on, where there's a lot of people gathered. What do you suppose Martha would be doing in a house where there are a bunch of people, a bunch of guests? If she stays true to form, she's going back and forth from the kitchen to the table, from the kitchen to make sure everybody has something to drink, make sure everybody has something to eat. She's going back and forth and back and forth. She's wearing out the carpet. And a couple of her Martha-like friends, her compatriots in kind, are doing the same thing. They brought covered dishes. You know, they bought, they brought their own potluck supplies and they're traveling back and forth with her, making sure everybody's got, did you get something to drink? Do you have something to eat? And they're just going around taking care of the guests. Some of us deal with these kinds of moments by getting busy. Just getting busy. If you're that type of person, you know, when everybody's falling apart after someone dies, you start thinking about funeral arrangements. You're the one who calls the mortuary. You're the one who calls the preacher. You're the one who starts dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, making sure everything happens. This is how you mourn. This is how you deal with it. You try to get that grasp, like me moving furniture. You do your mourning by getting active. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's a personality type. This is Martha, I think. So when I look at this house, if I imagined us walking into the door that day, this house full of people, you've got Pharisees, you've got, you've got family members, you've got professional mourners. It's a crazy kind of mishmash of people. Over there on the sofa is Mary. She's kind of curled up. She's got a pillow in front of her. And she's just crying. Heartbroken. Weeping. It's been four days and the tears are still coming in a flood. Her sister, going back and forth between the kitchen and the, and the family room. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with stuff. Keeping busy. I imagine the, the, the person who comes from Jesus to tell them that they're here comes to the back door, comes to the kitchen door, comes inside, tells Martha, hey, Jesus is here and he wants to see you. It's an interesting thing that God does. Jesus stays outside the city. 
And he requests Martha's presence. He doesn't force himself into the situation. He doesn't storm into the house. He doesn't raise Lazarus and bring him into the house as a great, woohoo, look at my surprise. He sends a messenger. And he invites Martha to come to him. God is like that with your faith. If you are dealing with something you buried or someone you've buried that you've not been able to get through, that you've struggled with, that you've battled with, that you are still today dealing with, it could have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it could have been yesterday. But wherever it is and whatever it was, God is not going to burst into this. He's going to invite you to discuss this with Him. He waits outside the city. And there He invites Martha to come. Martha doesn't tell her sister. Whoever was sent doesn't tell Mary. They just tell Martha. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus had come, went and met Him. But Mary was sitting in the house. We get the dialogue immediately in verse 21. Now Mary, or now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know what I love about this? The honesty of it. If your prayers are not honest, how is God going to touch your heart? How is God going to answer a prayer that's covered? How is God going to answer half of a prayer? What my heart says is, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What my voice says is, well, you know, um, you know the, whatever, the will of God, you know, I've submitted to the will of God. But if you don't bring your frustration and your anger to him, how does he answer that for you? And if he doesn't answer it for you, you're going to keep carrying it. You're going to keep dragging it around. It's going to continue to just erode your relationship. You can't trust Him now because if He had come when you sent for Him, things would be different right now. He showed up your house to eat. He showed up at your house to sleep. He showed up your house with 12 other men to hang out. You've taken care of His needs. You've supported His ministry. You've seen Him take care of people who didn't like Him. And he isn't taking care of you. And he claims to love you. How do you deal with that? People say, God loves you. And you say, yeah, but. I, 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 still, I still wonder. I still wonder why he didn't handle this. I love the honesty of Martha's statement. Lord. She still recognizes him as Lord. She still recognizes his authority. She still recognizes who he is. If you had been here, if you had been present, my brother would not have died. Verse 22. But even now. But even now. Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. 
But I know who you are. Even now, if you wanted to reverse this, you could. But even now, even with Lazarus in the tomb, even with Lazarus dead, even now, but even now, I believe, even now, but even now, in spite of what I see, even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. The short dialogue, but there's so much there. Even in her brokenness, she reaches out in faith. Even in this heartbroken moment when she's confronting Jesus about not showing up when he called. She said, I understand that even now, even now, even in spite of all that I see around me, even now I know you could reverse this. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. It's an interesting phrase because there's no when in it. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no, uh, and, and your brother will rise again today would be helpful. He just says, your brother will rise again. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I know that. I know that at the end of time, there's going to be a resurrection. My brother will be in it. I have no question about that. But that's the last day. That's not today. You see, I needed you four days ago. I could use you today. And you're telling me, yeah, 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 platitudes, he'll rise again. Thanks a lot, but no thanks. Last days of earth's history could be a long time from now. I don't know. I'm not wanting to wait for my brother. Do you realize the, the, the financial insecurity of two women without a man? Do you realize how this, where, where this puts my sister and I? Do you realize the danger we're in because of this? Come on, I could do some help now. Not in the fine future by and by. Pie in the sky by and by. Thanks. I still trust you, but you're not helping much. (laughs) Jesus, as he often does, makes a massive theological statement next. You, you watch the scriptures. You read them carefully. You'll find over and over again, Jesus makes these huge theological statements in the midst of a story. And you're like, what? Here he is again. Martha, focus, eyes. I am the resurrection and the life. I get it. I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus declaring that he is in charge of who lives and who dies. That he is in charge of resurrection and life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha... Listen to me, chick. Do you know who you're talking to? I am the resurrection and the life. I hold the keys to life and death. Do you understand? When I tell you your brother will be resurrected, it's the truth. It's reality. It will happen. He still hasn't told her when. But man, he has hit her with a really big, deep theological piece. I am the resurrection. And I am the life. 
I am. This is the statement of His Godhood. Whoever lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you see the confession He's asking for? He is asking her to take all of her doubts and put them into her faith. To weigh her doubts against who He is. To take the fear, the frustration, the sadness, the questioning, and place it in front of Him and trust Him with it. She says, Yes, Lord. I believe that You are the Christ. The Son of the living God who has come into the world. Yes, I believe. Yes, God, I believe. I just want some action. I believe. I would just like to see something happen. If you have a Lazarus, which I'm sure you do, of some sort, there's a Lazarus. It may be that besetting sin that keeps cropping up in you. You know what I mean. That thing that keeps showing up in your life that you keep giving back to God and hoping that it'll go away and it'll never come back. That besetting sin that you thought when you first became a Christian should be overcome in a couple of weeks. And here it is 10, 20 years later and you're just not letting people see that piece of you. you you've, you've boxed it up. You've stuck it away. You've hidden it away and you've, you've come to God with it so many times you're not even asking anymore. You just kind of have a shorthand saying, God... It's here again. Stuck again. After this confessional moment, she walks away. She goes and tells her sister, Mary. I picture her again. He's on the couch. She goes and gets Mary. She leans over really close to her ear. Mary's sup supping. She says, The master's here. He's at the gates outside of town. And he's calling for you. Same story, right? He did not force Martha and he does not force Mary. He invites them both. Mary gets up. She hurries out. I think Martha snuck out the kitchen door. Mary blows through the crowd and heads out. And as she does, her her aching heart spilling out over them. People can't help it. This is a, it's an important thing to know when you're dealing with people who are suffering. The Marthas get overlooked. The suffering of the Marthas get overlooked because they're so busy you think they're okay. They're out there, you know, they're making potluck dishes, they're taking care of everybody. And because of that busyness, you think, yeah, they're okay, they, they're fine. They're not. This is just how they're dealing with it. When you have the Mary and she's weeping and she's crying and she's got Kleenex pieces stuck to her face, you want to help her and you you follow her along and the whole crowd follows her. No personal conversation with Jesus here. She comes rushing up to Jesus. She falls at His feet. She says the exact 
Same words her sister had said. I wonder if they, in the privacy of their home, had been saying this to one another. If only Jesus had been here. If only Jesus had been here. If only Jesus had been here. She says, not like Martha, who I picture as eye to eye with him, falling on her knees in front of him. She says, Master, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The theology has been dispensed with. The theology and the teaching has been done with Martha. There's none of that with Mary. He simply says to Mary, where have you put him? I don't know why. There's a big crowd of people there. Some are opposed to him. Some are for him. But he simply says, where have you laid him? Where have you laid Jesus? Or where have you laid Lazarus? And they all get up. Mary gets up off her knees. The crowd, Martha apparently as well. They all, they all gather and they, they, they lead Jesus to this tomb. And it's an interesting precursor. It's an interesting foreshadowing. And Jesus there stands outside a tomb, sealed with a stone in front of it. He turns to the people that are there and he says, roll the stone away. Now stop for just a sec. Why is he asking for this? Does Jesus have the authority to roll the stone away? Of course he does. Could he have called an angel to just roll the stone away? Sure he could have. But God always calls us to step into these moments Because the question is, do you really want to move the stone? This is the question he asks of people all the time. Would you like to be healed? I know you've tucked this piece of your life away. You've, you've sealed it behind this rock, or behind, yeah, behind this rock. You're keeping the stench of your experience from spilling out on people. And, and you don't want anybody to see into that part of who you are. And so you've sealed it with the stone. Are you willing to move the stone away? Martha? No, it stinks in there. Martha speaks for all of us. It stinks in there. If you roll away this stone, things are going to be exposed that nobody wants to see. Anybody ever told you that? Anybody ever said to you, hey, no, you don't want to go there because nobody wants to see that. But part of your personality you never let anybody see? Except your spouse or your kids? And they wonder why you're so nice to everybody else and why you're such a grouch at home. Because... You roll a stone in front of grouchiness when you go out in public. You put on your smile and you're out there saying, Hi, everybody, look at me. I'm a good guy. And you go home and you yell and scream and throw things. If you're living with that person, it's a tough deal, isn't it? If you are that person, would you please roll the stone away in front of Jesus? Lord, if you had been here, I wouldn't be this way. Would you Would you do something about it? They get the sticks, they get the people, I don't know how many, they grab four or five big guys from the crowd, I don't know what they do, and they roll the stone away. These stones would be in a little groove, a little channel, so they would roll it, roll it into the channel on the other side. And I'll bet you this thing came out, I bet you it's a warm climate, it's the kind of place where that stuff happens, and biology being what it is, bacteria being what they are, I bet there was a bit of an odor that came out of that place when they opened it, kind of a green cloud emerged. 
Jesus prays. Listen. Jesus prays and he says, Father, I know you hear me. You always hear me. But I'm saying this for all these other people. The story is not about what you're seeing. It's much bigger. In the midst of all of this, there's this weird moment, this, the shortest verse in all the Bible. It's John, uh, it's verse 35 of John 11. It's that statement, that little tiny two-word statement. Jesus seeing her, seeing the crowd, seeing all that's around him, Jesus wept. And there in front of this tomb, the weeping Jesus, tears running down his face. We see Jesus weeping just in a few days when he comes over the hill, looking down on Jerusalem, he weeps again. Jesus is not weeping for Lazarus. Lazarus is in the tomb, he's about to be awakened. This is not about that. It's about bigger things. It's about the faith of all these people around him and whether or not they're going to trust him, whether or not they're going to follow God, whether they're going to believe what's going on. The crowd's split, right? The crowd is already whispering, hey, hey, he really loved him. Look, he's crying. The other crowd, well, if he likes him so much, why didn't he heal him? There's that conflict, that controversy of mankind. It's all welling into this moment. Welling also up in this moment is the fact that this has been the state of man for all of history since sin. Since sin, the God of the universe has stepped back and waited for this thing to play out. The God of the universe has just let the sin of man show itself for what it is. The God of the universe has wept with us, has felt our pain, has understood what, it's mean, what it means for us to be in this place. And he's offered the same thing each time. Join me. Come out, come out to where I am. Come, come join me and follow me and I'll show you the way. This little incident where Jesus waits a few days is such a little capsule of the thousands of years of sin's dominance on the planet and the heartbreak that it brings to God. And there he stands in front of the tomb. The stone's rolled away. Wet, Cheeks. And the climax of the moment, the story we've all been waiting for, the moment his sisters wanted, the moment that everybody's waiting for here, the disciples, all the hangers-on, looking into the tomb of the dead man. And Jesus says, in a loud voice, as if a whisper wouldn't be enough for the crowd to hear, Lazarus, come forth. Nobody hears anything at the moment. A guy wrapped up in strips of cloth probably doesn't make a lot of noise walking across the stones in a cave. Suddenly, into the light that is shining, into the darkness where the stone was laying, comes Lazarus. This isn't about Lazarus. This is about whether or not you're going to roll away the stone and let Jesus into your life. Are you going to let Jesus get into the places that you've been keeping him out of? 
Are you going to let him into those secret corners that you've been hiding things in? Everybody has a Lazarus. Are you going to carry yours past today? Is that tomb going to stay sealed past today? Because what Jesus is saying is there's a bigger story here. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Lord of all creation. I am capable of changing things on your behalf. I am capable of changing things when you don't think they can be changed anymore. I am capable of making it different even though you think this is the way it always will be. I'm capable of dealing with your sadness. I'm capable of dealing with your sorrow. I'm capable of dealing with all that you're, you're wrought with right now. But will you, will you, will you roll the stone away? The last command from Jesus here is unwrap him. Hmm. Jesus made a really interesting, powerful, clarifying statement when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Because there has to be life after the resurrection. I'm not talking about those things in eternity right now. I'm talking about once you roll away that stone. Jesus said, I, yeah, I will go in there with you and I will help you and I will clear this out for you. I will cry with you. I will pray with you. I will sit with you. Whatever it takes, I'll be present with you. But when we finally cleared what's in the cave, Don't forget, I'm not just the resurrection. We'll unwrap it. And then I'll go with you then too. Because the next day, and the next day, and the next day are important. John writes the story of chapter 11. And he gave us a little glimpse into chapter 12. He said, this is the Mary who broke the alabaster box, anointed Jesus' head, anointed his feet, wiped them with her hair as an act of over flow for what he had done for her. The next day is a day of worship. It's six days after the resurrection of Lazarus. She's kneeling at his feet again. No longer pleading for the life of her brother, but praising him for what he has done her family. Roll away the stone. Let Jesus get to your Lazarus. Because he is the resurrection. He is the life. And your life will be better afterwards. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give your blessing to all of those who are watching, listening, all of those who are part of what we're doing here today. Father, I pray that you would, I pray that you would help us 
to be brave enough to take you to the place where we buried him, to take you to the place where we buried it, to take you to the place where we've held that thing that we just couldn't talk to you about. Help us to have the courage to be honest about the pain and to face all that will come afterward. Lord, we don't have the authority or the power to do this on our own. But we ask that you would step into our lives with assertion of your power and help us to deal with our own Lazarus. In your name we pray. Because of your grace. Because of your authority. Because you are the resurrection and the life. Amen.